Hello and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. And I'm so excited that it's October, um, that we're here, uh, and I am getting married this month, which is crazy. So I have a lot of episodes stacked up for you guys. Don't worry. Um, They won't stop coming out when I'm on my honeymoon. I have several (laughs) in the bank. So um, get excited because they're some of the best um, I've done yet, especially today. So hang tight because it's really, really good. First, I have an update news item. So you'll remember a few weeks back, I talked about Kerbo, which is the weight loss app that Weight Watchers released um, targeting children. So specifically targeting children ages 8 to 17, um, which I talked about as being crazy. (laughs) You're never supposed to recommend a weight loss to kids. Okay, so there's been a lot of dietitians calling for that to stop, um, calling for Weight Watchers to take it down. And um, we've been doing a lot of activism and outreach and we signed petitions. And finally, um, October 3rd, so last Thursday, um, two United States senators sent a letter to the CEO of Weight Watchers, also now known as WW, um, you know, basically asking her to take this app down. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the letter. The senators who sent it are Richard Blumenthal, who is actually my senator because I'm from Connecticut, or I live here now, and um, the other senator is Tammy Baldwin. So the letter says, Dear Ms. Mindy Grossman, we write to you today with grave concern regarding the recent release of your app, Curbo by WW. Kerbo, much like WW, formerly Weight Watchers, is an app-based program designed to spur behavior change resulting in weight loss. However, unlike WW, Kerbo is designed to target children as young as 8 years old. While parents can pay for a coach to provide guidance to their children, these coaches are not medical professionals. Childhood obesity is a medical crisis in the United States, and it is imperative that pediatricians and medical professionals including those with expertise on eating disorders, guide decisions, parents, and children, and making about healthy habits. I think they should say are making about healthy habits, but okay, here we go. An app like Kerbo in conjunction with the lack of relevant medical expertise has the potential to contribute to eating disorders. Yes, thank you, senators, (laughs) that plague children, adolescents, and adults across the country. Simply put, Kerbo has no place in the hands of children, and we ask that you withdraw the app from the marketplace. This is awesome. Um, The letter goes on for another like two pages, two and a half actually. You should definitely read it. I'll put the link in my show notes, but um, this is a huge deal, and hopefully uh, WW or Weight Watchers will take this app off the market so that children are not, um, more children are not, you know, developing eating disorders thanks to dieting. So um, that is the news item for today. Uh, in other news, I will be having a Q&A episode. I know I talked a lot about it back in like April, um, and I mentioned it recently, but don't forget, guys, if you have questions, if you have anything you'd like a therapist, a doctor, and a dietitian to ask, uh, or to answer, not to ask, you're asking the question, um, please 
send those to me. So send them to worth, W-E-R-T-H, your while nutrition at gmail.com. I already have a few set up for the episode and I would love to get more. So please send them anything. Um, We're going to be recording that in January. So you have time, um, but please send them. Also, please subscribe and like write a review. I know there's a lot more of you than, um, you know, the few who have written a review or subscribed or rated it uh, who listen. So I just love it if you all could go um, give it a rating or review. It really helps me out and um, it will help, you know, me keep doing what I'm doing, which hopefully you like. So today, as I said, is a really, really special episode. Um, I have Lauren Mulheim, the author of When Your Teen Has an Eating Disorder, on the podcast. She is a psych D, so a psychologist out in LA. She runs Eating Disorder Therapy LA, and she has so much good information for you all, especially for parents. So if you know a parent or a caregiver of a child or an adolescent with an eating disorder, this is really a great episode for them. So, um, you know, take a listen, spread it to anyone you think might benefit. But without further ado, here's Lauren. Hello. Hi, Julia. It's Lauren Mulhan. Hi, thanks for calling. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to get started with how did you first get involved um, in eating disorders or first introduced to them? Well, I first started to work in a bulimia research lab in graduate school. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with a researcher who was doing early clinical trials for CBT for bulimia oh, okay. in the 1990s. And I pretty much fell in love with doing CBT for bulimia back then and have continued to work in eating disorders for most of the time since then with a, um, the exception of a break when I worked for the county uh, for 10 years in the early part of my career. Okay. So just to explain a little, because I haven't had um, too many people on who work uh, as psychiatrists or psychologists, could you explain a little bit what CBT means for someone with bulimia or an eating disorder? Sure. CBT is, stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and it's the best research treatment for adult eating disorders. And it focuses on understanding the behaviors and thoughts that are maintaining the problem. Okay. So it really focuses on breaking the diet uh, binge cycle. Sort of breaking the like uh, habits they're changing, in. Yeah, by changing behaviors. It's it's a very behavioral treatment. I think that's one of the misconceptions is people think that it's mostly about challenging thoughts, but it's really focused on changing behaviors. And so, you know, the first step is really to start with regular eating, which consists of three meals and two to three snacks a day at regular intervals and not uh, eliminating or not restricting food group and uh, people usually keep food records which are then shared with the therapist and 
then when there are binges, the therapist can review what were the factors that led up to that. Right. Okay. So a lot of tracking and making sure those small behaviors, you know, are continued from week to week. And you mentioned that it's for adults. Um, it, it's not normally used for children? It's not really used for children. It's used for some older adolescents. Okay. Again, it's primarily for bulimia and binge eating disorder. There is some use of it for anorexia uh, with adults. And again, some limited... Um, work with adolescents. There's some, some studies showing that, uh, you know, a CBT adapted for adolescents can be helpful for for adolescents with bulimia. Okay, that But makes I sense. think most, yeah, most adolescents don't really have the wherewithal to track and... Yeah, it's a um, lot. <laughs> make, ...make behavior changes around their eating on their own, especially yeah. when they're living with a family. And, right. um... Yeah. So you work with a lot of different eating disorders, not just bulimia, correct? Correct. Right now, I work with bulimia, binge eating, anorexia, and a certain amount with ARFID. Right, yeah. Uh, restrictive food intake disorder. Yeah, so pretty much the whole gamut of eating disorders. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned like CBT for bulimia and binge. So what are sort of the approaches for the other ones? Well, CBT is appropriate for bulimia and binge eating disorder, and there is also a cognitive behavioral therapy developed for ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is um, mostly in children, right? Yeah, although with adults too, I've worked with some adults, and um, especially the type of ARFID that's around fear of negative consequences, like particularly fear of vomiting or fear of choking. Right. Because it's primarily an exposure-based treatment, and exposure is behavioral-based and comes out of CDP. So there's a recent protocol developed by Jenny Thomas and Cameron Eddy for CBT for ARFID, so I've been using that. And then for anorexia, I work a lot with adolescents, with anorexia, and the leading treatment for adolescents with anorexia is family-based treatment, right? which is a treatment that involves, centralizes the role of parents in helping to change the behaviors. And I and think I'm... I see it, oh, go ahead. I, I see it a lot like CBT because it's focused on the parents changing the behaviors for the adolescents. Right, Okay. And it's often called the Mosley approach. Is that accurate? <laughs> it, it was they... originally, uh, well, it wasn't actually, there's an interesting story about that. It was developed originally at the Mosley Hospital in the UK. Right, yeah. And yeah. the, um, and then uh, Locke and LaGrange brought it to the U.S. originally to Stanford, and they wrote, they manualized it into a, like a, you know, a, a very structured treatment and some parents wanted to to help disseminate that and so Laura Collins was actually behind calling it the Mosley method to help distinguish this newer family-based treatment that's primarily behavioral from traditional family therapy which 
it was often used for anorexia back in the, you know, before the 1980s, but really focused on the family, changing family dynamics. Right. Okay. So like so, having a family in actually, to the hospital or the therapist office. Right. The whole thing, well, the, the, the consistent thing was that in both treatments, the family was there, but in traditional family therapy, the adolescent was seen as acting out a family problem through their eating disorder. And right. So the, yeah. The treatment was to change family dynamics. In SDP, it was primarily seen as not anyone's fault, but and the treatment was focused on helping parents to change the adolescent's behavior. So but, she wanted yeah. to distinguish this newer treatment from traditional family therapy. So she called it the Maudsley method. But okay. Block and Lagrange, who manualized the treatment, don't identify with it as being Maudsley. And right. Maudsley Hospital in the UK does like, we didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> right, they've also developed lots of other treatments. Yeah. So um, now Laura Collins has gone and said, okay, like I, you know, now it's just family based treatment or SBT. Okay. Good to know, because yeah. I've had a couple different people on here before mention it and always call it Maudsley. And then, you know, sometimes you see it as FBT. So I was like, are they really the same or or not? Um, and that makes sense. Yeah. And then the UK, they actually have a different name. In the UK, they call it um, something like um, adolescent focused therapy or, or I can't remember what they call it. Yeah. But it's got an entirely different name. So. And. I'm really glad you brought up the original like family therapy um, sort of approach because I've I've never heard anyone explain it that way and I um, I had bulimia growing up and uh, as a teenager and and that is exactly how they approached it um, in mm. in therapy and so that was so interesting to hear you say it that way because I was like oh man that's how they tried to help us and that was the opposite of helpful. <laughs> um, for 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 our family at least yeah that was so interesting yeah and so you work a lot or at least have written a lot about teenagers right and that sort of interaction between the the child who has the eating disorder and the family yeah so i wrote a book uh published by new harbinger in 2018 that is supposed to be a self-help book for parents on how to help their team with an eating disorder using the principles of family-based treatment. Okay. So sort of taking that like different approach. It's not, it's not like something's wrong with your family. So that's why your child has an eating disorder, but uh, how can we work together to help them? Exactly. It's a, it doesn't blame the parents, but it's, it reiterates that parents can be part of the solution. Okay. And it gives parents, the book and the approach give parents really practical things that they can do to help support their child who may be struggling with an eating disorder. Could you, um, you know, go into a little detail about some of those? Because I get parents all the time asking, like, I don't even know how to approach the topic with my son or daughter because they just, you know, run away or kind of shut down um, when I talk about it. Yeah, and um, so SBT was pretty, um, I think, revolutionary for the field because just like that old family therapy, some of the older treatments for anorexia and even there's some documented um, 
reports for a, back from like the 1600s where people treating anorexia said parents were the worst attendants and yeah. the child should be separated from the parents. So there was really a lot of blame in yeah. eating disorders. And it persisted, whereas parents have stopped being blamed for things like schizophrenia and autism. But the blame in eating disorders continues even to the present day, where yeah. parents are often blamed for a child's eating disorder. And so the traditional treatment focused on, of course, if you see the parents as the problem, separating the child and telling the parents not to be involved. Right. And traditional psychotherapeutic thinking often tells parents, don't get into a battle, you know, with your child over their eating. But SBT really proved that that advice was wrong because in these clinical trials for SBT, they were getting much better results than standard treatment that told the parents to step aside. In fact, you know, Jim Locke, who was working at Stanford, part of the reason behind implementing this treatment was kids would go to the hospital, get refed, and then go home and then relapse. Right, because no one's helping them, right? Right, and the cycle continued over and over. And he said, you know, the common interpretation was that, you know, parents were making the situation worse. But the alternative hypothesis was that parents just didn't know what to do and weren't empowered to do anything about it. Right. So, So yeah, go ahead. So so FBT equipped the parents to really take a stand in terms of standing up to the eating disorder and taking charge of the nutritional aspect until the child is well enough to do that for themselves. Right. So kind of not trusting, you know, the child who has an eating disorder to be able to decide what to eat and not or not. Um, and helping exactly. helping them by kind of going against what the eating disorder is saying. Exactly. So, you know, rather than, you know, telling parents to, you know, not to get into a battle for control with your child, in FBT we say the child is not in control, it's the eating disorder that's in control and you don't want to allow the eating disorder to be in control of what your child's eating because it could kill them. Right. Yeah, definitely. And how do you work with, you know, families or um, other, you know, professionals in the field who are so used to that other method um, to switch towards this sort of way of thinking? Yeah, so I try to do a lot of education. That was one of the reasons behind the book was to help parents and other professionals find out more about it. I've done some workshops, like I did one at IADAP last year with a dietitian and an MD on how to how to work in a team where um, even if you're not an FDT trained therapist, but let's say you're you know you're the dietitian or you're the additional therapist doing DDT or exposure response prevention. Um, how do you understand the approach? And it's it's basically just not interfering with um, the parents being in charge of meals. So rather than giving a meal plan and charging the adolescent with their own meals, it's allowing the parents to structure and determine what the adolescent in recovery should be eating and take away those you know, food decisions so that the eating disorder is not making the decisions. And um, it's a, I think it's a shift in mindset for people who are new to this approach. But once I started to work this way, I really saw how much 
faster, behaviors could be interrupted. And, you know, it's, I don't, I don't see FCP as, you know, a panacea. Like, I think that many kids do need additional treatment. Right, yeah. Um, for some, it may be all they need, especially when it's caught early and, um, you know, parents can really interrupt behaviors. And But, you know, many kids will need additional treatment, but at least you can reverse the, you know, malnutrition and start interrupting behaviors and the kid spends less time, you know, medically compromised and nutritionally deficient and their brain comes online and then there's a better chance for them to start to get better, you know, cognitively understand and, you know, develop some motivation to be involved in their own treatment. Right. Like when you can't even think clearly, it's hard to, you know, take actions to help yourself. Yeah. And when it's so terrifying to eat, um, you know, many are unable to get themselves to do it. So, Mm -hmm really through, you know, parental love that parents can, you know, rescue their child from potentially dangerous disorder. Yeah. What are some of the most common, like, questions you get from parents about this this way of of treating their child? Well, one of the big misconceptions is that it's just about, you know, reversing the, the malnutrition and restoring weight. And that's just the first part. So there's three phases of FCP. The first phase is really focused on on that aspect. But the you know, there's the other aspects which include the kind of gradual giving back of control to the adolescent. So right. I think this is one of the unique things about FCP is rather than an adolescent coming out of a residential treatment center and then, you know, at the age of twelve maybe doing their own meal plan. It puts the parents temporarily in charge in an age-appropriate way. So, you know, 12-year-olds who don't have eating disorders are not usually doing their own meals. And so it's using the family context to do things that are developmentally appropriate, but as the teen recovers, giving them more independence. So, you know, to be able to eat lunches at school with friends versus with the parents and to being able to make some choices, like, you know, what do you want for snacks? So I love that FCP really handles this aspect of the handing back control. And I think some parents don't don't hang in long enough to get that part of the treatment. Mm, yeah. They just like, you know, drop out the weight is restored or they think that it's only about the weight restoration and, and this other part is really important. Right. And then I also see it as, as parents kind of providing a scaffold to require recovery behaviors as long as it takes until the adolescent is able to do that for themselves. Okay. So while the manual says, you know, it's six to 12 months, many of the professionals I know recognize that there are families where it takes longer. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that much as long as they're weight restored and you can, you know, keep that they're medically safe, you know, even if you have to supervise meals for longer, um, that is still a better place to be in than having them, you know, still be underweight. So when you're um, talking, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. So when you're talking about it, it, it sounds a lot like it's really meant for sort of a, a younger child or like a young adolescent. 
um, but maybe like an older teenager or young adult really would not work for because they sort of already have a lot of authority over their own decisions? Well, I, I think that's another misconception. Okay, um, good to know. Many, um, I mean, I'm sure in your work you've encountered college students and other young adults yeah. who are having a lot of trouble recovering on their own. Right, right. And, um, you know, I, it's just it's very hard to eat when the eating disorder is telling you not to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so I think, um, you know, there are many other people who benefit from this type of family approach. And many of us trained in FDP have had success and there's, some case reports, but no um, large-scale studies yet using it with um, adults and young adults, um, where, you know, I've had parents, um, you know, supervise meals by FaceTime. Oh, okay. Um, you know, so it can be done creatively. Um, I know people who've seen young adults who are employed um, but decide to move home with their parents for the meal support and accountability. Right. Um, and I even know professionals who are using this with older adults. There's uh, someone who recently said she's doing this with um, someone in their 60s and the, the adult children are, oh, wow. are doing the meal support. So I think it's a wildly, a widely applicable model, um, you know, recognizing the centrality of food and full nutrition in recovery. Right. I guess so. One reason I asked that question is because I've had several, you know, clients or patients who at one point went through this FBT sort of treatment. Um, and they have a lot of like, and I maybe this is because they didn't really finish the end of the program with the parent giving back control, but they seem to have a lot of like, oh, my parents have to control everything I eat sort of feeling and are almost, they almost feel like it made their relationship harder because they they thought they were independent as you know older teens but but are it was sort of taken away from them yeah i mean again it should only be temporary right and um you know again the the goal is only to take it back for as long as is required until the adolescents can do it on their own right so um you know in many of the uh, adolescents who are successfully treated do report that, you know, how grateful they are that their parents did this for them, that they yeah. realized, you know, how hard it was. And, um, you know, they're very grateful. And I think, you know, at least in the the report um, that I've seen, it, it doesn't permanently damage the relationship. Right. It can make yeah. it tough when they're in the middle of it and, you know, when they're not well and not able to do the things they want, it's the parents become an easy target. Of course, um, yeah. You know, yeah. parents are not letting me do this, but in reality, it's the eating disorder that's taking life away. Right. So It's a good way to put it. So, yeah. Yeah. And so do you have any advice for, you know, parents or, or loved ones who are with, um, you know, an adolescent or a young adult with an eating disorder and they have a lot of those behaviors at dinner where they are, um, you know, they don't want to eat and they kind of react uh, out against the people eating with them or trying to encourage them. Well, specifically how to 
respond like, to Neil? Yeah, just like how do you how do you manage that? Because I've spoken with some who you know they sort of just like shut down, let the kid, you know, run the course of their um, what they're upset about or what they're stressed about, um, and don't really engage. And then others, you know, sort of take it into uh, a shouting match sort of thing, and and it's hard to know for them, you know, how do we deal with this um, situation? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's one of the things that FCT does a good job with, and it basically sets it up, uh, you know, outside the meals to determine what you require for your kids. Right, okay, that makes sense. You know, like, if you're going to serve the food and require your child to eat it, then they're going to know that's the expectation ahead of the meal, and then you're going to have a series, a set of, like, like you're going to have a structure and... um, kind of rewards and consequences set up. So, like, a typical thing with, you know, an SDT is, and most of these kids are, you know, pretty driven. So right, if yeah. the child doesn't finish breakfast, they can't go to school. Right. right. So that's a logical consequence. You don't finish your breakfast, you know, you can't go to school. So <laughs> that sets up the expectations that they eat, and then there's a consequence that they don't. And I always tell parents, you know, and you set this up ahead of time, right? So that's important. Yeah, they know. In the middle of the meal, like, yeah. right? Um, and, um, you know, it's just because you have to follow through on the consequence doesn't mean the consequence isn't working, right? So they may have to see that you're serious, that they stay home from school before the next day they eat the breakfast. Right. Um, you know, or maybe a week, you know, and then they're like, okay, I realize I have to eat breakfast. Um, you know, and so it's about shaping behavior and um again like you know we encourage parents to have this set up ahead of time and in the middle of the meal it's not helpful to remind them if you don't finish your breakfast you can't go to school because that comes out as a threat and i always tell parents that you know the anxiety that a kid with an eating disorder feels around mealtime is about the level of anxiety that most people would feel if we were about to jump out of an airplane. Right, and yeah, so that's totally true. when anxiety is really high and they're in this fight or flight, you know, thinking that you can't really logically reason with them. So what's best, and there's some actual research on um, how parents, because it's a family meal as part of FCT sessions, mm-hmm. and they've actually done some studies about what helps, what interventions parents do during the family meal that helps, and it's um, of course, basically, like, staying calm, not yelling, um, yeah. but just reiterating, like, keep eating, you know, in a very, like, non-emotionally charged way, um, you know, and prompting them to keep eating, and then also, like, some physical prompts, like, handing them the spoon, um, you know, sitting close to them, staying calm, those kinds of things tend to help. Definitely, Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Really good advice. Um, so this FBT is mostly for anorexia, it seems? It's mostly, it was developed originally for anorexia, but again, there's some um, good research in using it for bulimia with adolescents. Okay. And when it was <laughs> compared to CBT for bulimia with adolescents, it brought around, around faster results than CBT for bulimia. Okay. So it's a little different. Um, it's actually probably a little harder yeah. Parents have to um, like monitor bathroom time. and then yeah. they also have to supervise between meals. Yeah. Um, 
to make sure there's no purging so parents will, <laughs> um, you know, set bathroom rules, like the child has to use the bathroom before the meal and then can't go within an hour after the meal or they have to leave the door open or in extreme cases, you know, parents will have their child sleep with them, mm. the doors off hinges, stuff like that, because it's really important to interrupt purging behavior. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It would be great to understand that a little more because when I think about FBT, I always think about the meal monitoring, but with bulimia and there's so many other times when the eating disorder is, is maybe even more active, like sort of right after the meal. Um, yeah. So, so for a yeah, parent, so, it's a lot of monitoring during those times more even. Yeah. And, um, you know, for exercise compulsions, it can right. be positive, right? right. So yeah. um, parents with kids who secretly exercise have to really keep their kid with them at all times. Um, you know, they that's where parents often have them sleep in the same room because, right. you know, yes. then they won't be up exercising in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> you know, and um, open doors and um, you know, like sometimes there have to be, you know, passes at school mm. um, and these kids have to be closely watched you know, to really stop the compulsive behaviors. Right. And and for binge eating, is it a possibility at all? Or is that sort of a totally, would be a totally different treatment? You know, that's the one um, disorder there's less evidence for. Right. It's newer to the um, DSM. Yeah. Newer to the DSM, FBT has not been shown to be so successful for binge eating disorder. Although one of my own hypotheses is that because it's not been applied with kind of a health of every size lens yeah, and yeah. that maybe there's been some um, limiting in terms of, you know, binge eating versus focusing on making sure that they've been just eating enough. Um, but um, we don't have much in the way there of isn't much um, specific no evidence for FBT, you know. Yeah. And that's interesting that you brought up um, health at every size along with binge eating, because I think at least for me, and I'm sure you as well, you know, you see all the time that someone assumes a certain body type for binge eating disorder. Yep. And how do you, uh, you know, how do you explain to someone who maybe doesn't believe that they could have it or that someone else could have it if they don't look a certain certain way? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge issue in yeah. our field, right? And, yeah. Um, and, you know, again, because, and, and the reason, you know, and again, I could be seen as playing into the site, bringing it up only in binge eating disorder, but I think the right. way it's been traditionally diagnosed, I definitely have patients with atypical anorexia who started out in larger bodies, and um, I'm restoring them to their growth curves where they may restore to larger bodies and they may even be diagnosed by us with us, you know, by other people with having binge eating disorder because they don't look like the typical patient with anorexia. Mm. So I think this is such a, a big problem. issue in our field. Yeah. And, um, you know, just the idea that, you know, bodies have a certain weight they're supposed to be, um, you know, this kind of one size fits all approach. Um, to bodies is totally wrong. Yeah, like and, the weight um, requirements for for anorexia, even. Right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, but so that's what I wonder because I know that some of the research groups that are studying SBT are also studying it for pediatric weight loss. Mm. So. <laughs> yeah, that seems like 
mm. <laughs> maybe they shouldn't be studying those together um or, or studying it at all well right? true um, yeah that's my own that's my own opinion no, no i would um, agree <laughs> Um, yeah, but that's why I'm saying, like, if they define, if the people doing this define binge eating disorder as people in larger bodies, and then the way they studied it, um, you know, was a way that included some limiting of, you know, binges that didn't focus on them eating enough, that that may right. have, um, you know, impacted why SBC was not successful. And my own approach, you know, again, because I um, try to practice evidence-based treatment, I don't, you know... I don't offer treatment that is not validated, so I wouldn't, set, yeah. I wouldn't push FBT for binge eating disorder. But in my own work, when I do SBT, I'm always focused on, you know, is the kid eating enough, regardless of the diagnosis and regardless of the body size? Because I think that, you know, not eating enough is really the source of all the eating disorders. Yeah, definitely. And that has come up on, on every single podcast I've recorded, so good to have it again. Um just one last question, or, or sort of it's two. For parents who are asking you questions or, you know, starting to work with you and they're doing FBT, do you often see, like, haze coming up in terms of, like, they don't understand that, you know, their child, if their child is in a larger body, might not be eating enough, or that, you know, if their kid is what may seem like, you know, a normal weight, that they could be, it, it might not be the right weight for them? Um, do you explain that a lot to parents, or is it more just the method? No, I, I explain help with the resize, and, um, you know, that's why I'm maybe not a, a purist in my FBT approach, um, but I, I do explain kind of some of the neurobiology, and I do some education around help with the resize and just the idea that bodies are diverse. And I always try to get the adolescent's growth history right. to yes, try to, you know, see what's been normal for that adolescent. And it's really fascinating to look at yeah. growth records because I usually find that just by looking at the curve, you can pretty much predict where it you know, recovery is going to yeah. take well, and where recovery is going to take place. At oh, place, yeah. You know, for the current age, I just seeing what percentage they've always grown at. You know, I mean, some kids you can't tell, but for many it's very consistent along whatever percentage has been normal for them. Right. And so if you were to give one piece of advice to a parent or a family going into treatment or helping their child recover, what would it be? Well, I'd say that the most important thing is that you can be an important part of your child's recovery and, you know, I would encourage parents to do some reading about family-based treatments because I think even if your child is in some other treatment, you can do a lot with meal support. Right. And I think that recovery can't really happen in the absence of good nutrition. Yeah, definitely. So, so I think um, my hope is that even if, you know, adolescents are getting some other treatment, the parents are supported in helping to provide adequate meals and, um, you know, given the support that they need to do to help support their teens. Mm, okay, great. And I just like to ask every guest uh, at the end just to 
to lighten it up a little um, and more positive flow on food, um, what is your favorite food? Mm, probably pasta with pesto. Oh, that's a good one. We haven't had that one yet. Um, <laughs> and it's getting into fall, so you can have that. <laughs> I just I just made huge batches of pesto with my summer basil and oh, freeze awesome. it. And so then I have it all winter. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I really learned a lot. So um, really thankful for you calling in from California. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, have a great week. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye.